Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our Week in IndyCar show. This is your show, the listener Q&A episode, driven 100% by your questions sent in via Twitter, Facebook, and the Reddit IndyCar group. Staring out on a gorgeous golden Wednesday evening here in Northern California. It is 6.43 p.m. I'm going to have about 30 or 40 minutes to get through some of your questions tonight. Then I need to hit pause and come back in the morning and continue. A couple of items here to share up front, as always. Massive thanks to you all. This separate Week in IndyCar Q&A show, it's really become a lot of fun. Uh, I've come to enjoy this. Even the one, I think there was what, one that was maybe three, three and a half hours, where there was just crazy amount of questions. Uh, even that one was fun. I might have snored a little bit and uh, slept in the following morning, but yeah, this is a blast. So, you know, it might sound strange. It's my podcast. I started it. I do these things voluntarily, but I still really appreciate your help and your facilitating this to happen. So, yeah, just want to say thanks. Also want to say thank you to some awesome friends that do make this show possible. Uh, we don't really get into finances here, but uh, podcasting ain't cheap if you're trying to do it seriously. And so thankfully, very thankfully, we have Cooper Tires. We're now coming towards the close of our second year together, which is pretty awesome. Uh, Justice Brothers joined us at the beginning of the year as a new co-primary partner. And as you might have heard me mention before, my relationship with the Justice family dates back to 1998 in the good old Earl, the Indy Racing League. So, yeah, uh, I just get a kick. I get a big smile knowing that uh, there's some long, deeply rooted relationships at play here. Then obviously the kooks at torontomotorsports.com my spirit animals the ones that do all kinds of crazy fun stuff with stickers t-shirts cartoons mugs whatever uh those are mighty fine folks at torontomotorsports.com and then there's the folks that keep my my cranium safe uh, bell racing helmets located in speedway indiana chris wheeler and kyle kitesman and the whole family there so Anyways, I guess I'm just feeling the love tonight. Wanted to share that with you. But if you had the view that I did, you'd probably feel nothing but love and warmth. Probably also be many beers or many glasses of wine deep into things, too. A couple other things. So this is October 23rd, Wednesday the 23rd. We are a week and a day. When you're listening to this, it'll probably be Thursday the 24th which would be exactly one week away from the 20th anniversary of the great, truly great Canadian IndyCar driver, Greg Moore's loss. Uh, Call it an anniversary, but it's more a celebration of G. Moore's life, looking back on this 20-year marker. And so next Thursday, October 31st, Halloween, which unfortunately also happens to be the day of his loss in 1999 at Fontana. I'm going to be rolling out a podcast and a video combo that I captured at the 
NTT IndyCar Series season finale at Monterey in September. And that was, boy, that was a lot of fun. And so you might have seen some of the photos that were taken. My pal and friend of the paddock, LET's LET photos, Mike Levitt captured some. Sat down with one of Greg's best, best friends, Dario Franchitti. Another one of his best friends, Max Pappas. Also with Paul Tracy, who was a friend, but also a bit of a you know senior Canadian race car driver. Definitely the number one in IndyCar when Greg came in. And then also Mike Zizzo, who in a, I guess, a pretty cool uh, boomerang sense, was the head of communications for the CART IndyCar series back uh, at this time and is now the new VP of communications for IndyCar. And while Ziz unfortunately had to deal with putting together the press conference and the aftermath and everything at Fontana back in 99, the great parts of his relationship with Greg, uh, that's what he shared with us. So we have some context from two of Greg's closest friends, the uh, the little Brat Pack Drivers Club that we had in the late 1990s with P.T., a uh, countryman, but also a, a peer and a friend, and then Ziz, who just loved him uh, unfathomably. So the five of us sat down. I don't recall the exact length. Can't tell you exactly what it's going to edit down to, but it'll be 35-ish minutes, maybe 40 minutes. And so it's just an opportunity for us to sit down, share some love about Greg, share some reverie about Greg. A lot of it, though, driven from not just memorializing him. Wanted to use this 20-year mark as an important point in knowing that for those of us who are a little bit older and have been in the sport for a while, we saw Greg, we knew Greg, we felt and understood who he was, what he was to us, and recognized that with his death, October 31st, 1999, whole new generations of IndyCar fans have come along. Drivers, media, radio, reporter, TV. You know, there are folks who just started following IndyCar in this summer and who maybe have not had the time or the opportunity to go back and learn its history, might not even know Greg Moore's name. There are likely many who have heard his name, but having not seen him, uh, do not have the context of who he was. So that was the driver for a lot of the, the reason that we all got together. The reason that I asked everyone to come together and do this was not just to celebrate Greg, uh, on an anniversary, but to try and bring him forward to those who maybe don't know much about him and would get an opportunity to hear from some of his closest friends and those who really, truly loved him. So Greg Moore at 20 will be coming out on the 31st next Thursday, and I hope you I hope you enjoy it. It's going to come out of my YouTube page, so YouTube forward slash Marshall Pruitt. And it'll also be dropping here in audio form on the good old Marshall Pruitt podcast. Fun little piece of news came down yesterday. I got posted this morning, Wednesday on racer.com about my old engineering mentor, Michael Cannon, being hired at Chip Ganassi Racing to engineer Scott Dixon's car and didn't 
from the timing standpoint, didn't have a chance to get that in for your questions this week, but I imagine it will be part of next week's uh, Q&A format, so I look forward to that. Uh, another quick thing, too. My pal, and I do mean pal, because he's awesome. He's all kinds of awesome. You may know him. If you don't, I feel bad for you. That is my man, Dave Duzik. Just a character. <laughs> like so many of us, qualifies being just a true character. A super good one, though. Just a giant heart. And so someone who works as a part of IndyCar's race control, uh, does race management consulting, does many things in the sport as just an excellent human being. Further proof of his excellence. Uh, he does his annual Racers No Dave Duzik charity event, and it is going to be held again this year. Just mentioning this for a friend. If you are a person in or around Indianapolis on December 12th, the uh, Dave Duzik Foundation, he's doing a celebrity bartender challenge. So they are trying to drag out some celebrity bartenders. Dave made the massive mistake of posting on social media that they have four folks lined up for this. And there was a rumor I'd be, I might be number five. It ain't happening. Uh, first of all, poisoning people, probably not the thing you want to have happen, Dave. So don't invite me because I'm totally inept in that regard. Uh, B, I don't really drink. And it's not because I'm a puritanical guy. It's because, as you might have heard me before, um, in my youth, as a young race car mechanic, uh, in my 20s, in my, even into my very early 30s, I consumed enough alcohol for a lifetime. Uh, never had a problem, just uh, I'm good. So that craving to constantly have, yeah, haven't had that for quite a while. So yeah, other than the couple of beers I have per year, a couple of glasses of wine maybe, I'd probably be a really lame bartender just because, I mean, it's it's not my game anymore. Uh, but Charlie Kimball will be one. Uh, the, the Twitter celebrity, that is the Orange Cone. Uh, my pal Jamie Howe, pit reporter par excellence, will be there. Amanda Buzik will be there, too. And I know that they're looking for more celebrity bartenders for the uh, Racers No Dave Duzik uh, charity fundraiser. So... If you have any interest in this, it's just a cool thing. It's being in and around racers, primarily IndyCar. Uh, definitely some short track USAC dirt folks turn up as well. Uh, this is a pretty cool thing. So would just suggest that if you get a chance, check out uh, the Dave Duzik Foundation. And you can certainly find out what the tickets cost and go and have some fun and mingle with IndyCar and open wheel racer types December 12th. December 12th, and it's being held at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So pretty darn cool there. And finally, I want to say thanks to y'all again. So knowing that my brain operates about as well as a Lotus IndyCar engine, it was misfiring, whatever, a month or two ago. And the idea for doing a Joe Tonto's quarter retrieval t-shirt uh, a massively obscure reference from the worst racing movie ever made driven it just came it just it just arrived it had to happen 
So I reached out to my pal, Roger Warwick, who does all of my cartoon art, all of my event promo art, just everything. Uh, anything that has my fat butt on it or is related, uh, Roger does it. So he came up with the amazing artwork for what has become the Joe Tonto's Quarter Retrieval Service t-shirts that we started selling, I think, Monday, Friday? I don't know, uh, at torontomotorsports.com. Unlike just about everything else that we sell there, uh, these actually, there's a little bit of profit coming back my way on these because, frankly, we need it. And so I was really happy to find out that within just a couple days, I think we'd sold about 50 of them. Uh, after two or three days, I know we were up to 42, and that was a few days ago. So I'm fairly confident we're at at least 50, if not more. And, yeah, they're just dumb and fun. So if you like dumb and fun things, you're probably a listener of mine because that is my absolute wheelhouse. And if you have that arcane appreciation for really bad movies, just horrific movies like Driven and the truly classic, classically stupid scene of him flipping quarters out and picking them up with his rear tire and that proving something and humming as well. Uh, yeah, maybe this Joe Tonto t-shirt uh, could be your friend. So torontomotorsports.com and Derek has also made Derek Koska, the owner of torontomotorsports.com said, Hey, we should make some stickers of this too. So there are some stickers you can buy as well. And I think he might even be packaging them together. So check it out. Have some fun there. Speaking of fun, last item for you before we get to your new questions is celebrating the finest old question from last week. And this comes back to our pals at torontomotorsports.com and their gift pack they put together, which is a Marshall Pruitt podcast t-shirt, some stickers, a mug, whatever you might want. Send it your way. And how do you get chosen to get those each week? Well, one person is chosen, and it is the person whose question on the Marshall Pruitt podcast Facebook page when I send out my weekly call for questions. It's the person whose question got the most likes. So really simple format. So if you do want free stuff and to get in the running, well, Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page, Weekend Indy Car Call for Questions, and then just tell all your friends on Facebook to go there and like it, and you can rig the game and get free stuff. So Nick Vance, I don't think he did any of that. I think he just asked a question that people liked. Nick Vance, you uh, happen to be the guy that gets the free stuff. Uh, this week, with your question for Marcus Erickson, newest Chip Ganassi racing driver, uh, asking about now that he has a full season under his belt, what were your favorite aspects of racing an IndyCar? Do you have a particular event on the schedule this coming year that you're looking forward to the most? So, Nick Vance, drop me a DM, drop me a something, hit me with your email address, and then I will link you with Derek at torontomotorsports.com. He'll get you hooked up with free stuff. And for those of you who sent in the questions I'm about to dive into now, like I said, I'm openly suggesting game the system. <laughs> Family, friends, dogs, grandparents, give your question a like. And uh, the person with the biggest number who hasn't received a gift, gift pack in recent weeks, uh, you're going to be the winner. All right. We're going to start off with someone who has a very good first name, a mighty fine last name. Andrew Marshall who says, hey, Marshall, any news on Kyle Kirkwood for Indy Lights next year? Kyle Kirkwood being the winner 
of the Indy Pro 2000 title with the Italian RP Motorsports program? I would say no, Andrew. I don't. I do need to reach out to the young lad here and just get a feel for where he is at in the negotiation process, knowing that he does have a subsidized ride in Indy Lights as a result of winning that title. We do know that based on recent results, at least the last couple of years, if you aren't in an Andretti Autosport car, you are probably not winning the championship. So not sure where young American Kyle Kirkwood is going to end up, but I would say if he is not negotiating hard to be in an Andretti car, that would be a big surprise. Another thing, believe I've mentioned this very recently on the podcast as well, there was an initiative, didn't pan out, but I heard from some very solid sources that after Kyle just destroyed everybody in 2018 to win the first step of the road to Indy Ladder, winning the USF 2000 title, had heard from some pretty good sources that Honda, Honda Performance Development, was very keen in elevating this young lad, not to Indy Pro 2000, but all the way to Indy Light. So skipping the middle step right into Indy Lights. I can't tell you how much they would have helped with the funding, but uh, there would have been definitely some Honda help. So while that did not happen, I would just say, Andrew, that provided Honda's interest has remained, as I would hope it would, knowing how strong Kyle looks as a prospect, um, could being aligned with, say, I don't know, an Andretti team that, say, is one of the marquee Honda teams in IndyCar, hmm, that would make sense. So... Uh, not saying that there's any automatic entry into an Andretti car, but I would say that, boy, that would certainly seem like there's three parties at least that could help uh, make something like that happen. Let's go to Simon Rafi. Asks, is Tony George involved in IndyCar much these days? Any chance you could get him on the podcast? Oh, Simon, I love you. Um, Tony is indeed involved with the Ed Carpenter Racing team. Uh, see him around. I, I'd be lying if I said I knew he if he, whether he was at every single race with ECR. But yes, uh, the Ed Carpenter Racing Team, which is the Vision Racing Team that Tony started for Ed. Uh, that's the the history or lineage of that. The question here, and there's nothing negative about it. It's just a question. Is you know while we appreciate. Auto geek spending money with the Ed Carpenter racing team and appreciate Scuderia Corsa investing some money in some of the other logos we've seen on the cars last year, too. None of them have jumped out as big corporate powerhouses to fund, you know, uh, what, seven, eight, ten million dollars worth of an annual budget for two Indy cars. So definitely knowing that Tony. Ed's stepfather was a key originator back in the day of the team as Vision and also from the funding side. Uh, don't know. That would be my guess, possibly, that uh, Tony still has some sort of help or assistance in that regard. As for getting him on the podcast, <laughs> that, would be, that would be a score, Simon. Um, Tony, in terms of media... I don't think I'd be saying anything critical if I said he was 
kind of viewed as a recluse in that manner. You know, if you see him on pit lane, I know folks, you know, uh, will go and talk to him, but actual hi, speak into a microphone and say something, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, then there's one other thing, too. He really doesn't like me. So I, you combine those things, someone who is very media-averse, plus really doesn't like this guy from the media, um, yeah, I, again, I'd love to. I've wanted to. I have inquired about such things. Uh, when I did, what, um, I don't know, a couple of years ago, a uh, history of the split, definitely wanted to get Tony on and definitely reached out and definitely got no response back on multiple occasions. So who knows? Maybe, how's this? Maybe I should ask again. And may, I'm good. if it happens, Simon, you take credit because seriously, it'll be as a result of you just jogging my memory to see if that door can be opened again. You also ask, how much is the new aero screen costing for each car? And is IndyCar subsidizing that cost in any way? Uh, I know Robin in his mailbag this week put the number at 40000 That's a little bit different from what I've heard. Here's what I will suggest. I try not to do this very often, but... I feel okay in doing it this time. I did a really deep dive on IndyCar's new aero screen, also including cost, and also as much as we know about IndyCar's upcoming hybrid powertrain, the electrical kinetic energy recovery system, some Q&A stuff. Did all those for the new issue of Racer Magazine. Uh, the technology issue, which should be coming out uh, again the, with this going up Thursday, should be maybe today, end of the week, uh, something like that. Uh, I would really love for you, Simon, and anybody else who wants to learn a lot. And it's not because I tell you amazing things. It's because I asked my interview subjects to share deep insights. Would ask you to go and check that out. Uh, pick up the digital version of Racer Magazine if you prefer, or order order the print version. Uh, I actually do both, and read that because you know I spent a lot of time putting that together, and I would rather see you get the whole story in the new issue of Racer Magazine than just me sharing little parts and pieces here. So pick that up, and if you have more questions, Simon, after reading it, let me know, and I'll be happy to dive in with any areas that i didn't cover uh go to philip schmitz hey philip he says marshall what's your favorite memory of working with greg ray in the late 1990s i uh, was with greg with the thomas knapp motorsports genoa racing team that graduated from indy lights to the good old earl in 1997 and 98 uh, with greg with g ray i would say this philip actually it's not of Greg working with him in the late 90s. Uh, I first started working with Greg in 1993 at Genoa Racing. And uh, then through 94, he, I'm trying to remember, what did he do? Uh, 95, I think, 96, he went moved over to the Team Cool Green Indie Lights program or something along those lines. But uh, And then came back, I think, to us in 97, uh, Genoa. 
with our time together in the Atlantic series, which was just the baddest thing ever. Um, the thing I remember about Greg was 1993, possibly. I could be off, whether it's 93 or 94, but uh, I think it was the Laguna Seca, and he crashed in practice. I think it was whatever the last practice of the day was, uh, maybe Friday. And so this was the the Cart IndyCar uh, weekend season finale weekend, also the Atlantic Championship finale. And whatever he did, he just crashed. He did a proper job. Greg never had small crashes. Uh, that guy was just, I mean, this is a guy, home run hitter, knockout puncher, no jabs, no bunts, uh, no just trying to just loop the ball over, you know, in, into the outfield. No, this guy was nothing but home run swings. And loved that about him that's why he was so amazing um in certain scenarios where that played to his advantage uh whatever it was whatever he did uh with this crash which i'm not remembering the full details he did a proper job and so with the timing of it all the fact that we were a very small team the fact that we were on a super crazy budget small budget uh ended up being super late super late night you know well past midnight and what impressed me and i think he was I remember if we were leading the championship going to the finale or were second or whatever it was where there was, we were certainly in for a shot to win the title. Didn't, but we're in for a shot. I think Dave, David Empringham ended up taking it. Uh, nonetheless, this is something where this young driver, you know, what we would say road to indie level uh, could have, who was, you know, helping to fund the majority of this, his family at a very successful boat sales continues to uh, in Plano, Texas. Uh, this is someone who, you know, could have rightfully said, man, guys, I'm super sorry. I uh, need to go home, you know, go back to the hotel, you know, soak a little bit, get some rest, come back in the morning so I can be my most effective guy and uh, really try and, and make up for this mistake and practice and qualifying and whatnot. And instead he said, no, I'm going to be here with you guys. This is my screw up. I'm really sorry to do this. The timing is couldn't be worse. We really need to be executing at the highest level, and I just screwed up royally. Um, you guys are going to be here forever. And he refused to leave. Uh, he was urged over and over, please, seriously, you're actually doing yourself and us harm by staying and not getting rest. He said, no, uh, I made you guys stay. I'm part of you. I'm part of your team. I'm not leaving. And that just stuck with me. It stuck with me as, as really kind of a gold standard, Philip for uh, character worked uh, with a guy the following year and then the the year after that as well at genoa who was far more wealthy and was super entitled and i don't want to say the same exact scenario happened but was just the type to do the original scenario i painted hey guys sorry ultimately you know you guys are not too far removed from the help uh from you know the service class here so please do the thing i'm paying you to do for me uh i'm gonna head out of here in my rolls royce they actually had a rolls royce and i'll see you tomorrow and so greg could have easily done that and it would while no one would have said that's nice it would not have been surprising instead uh, he just really wanted to make sure that he we knew 
Uh, he was one of us, and we already knew that. But just a pretty amazing gesture, Phillips. So I uh, have seen that not that often, a couple times. More often, it's been the person say, ah, sorry, guys. Uh, oh, by the way, I got dinner at 7. I'm going to bounce. And you go, thanks, buddy. Uh, I also believe Greg went and grabbed dinner for everybody and coffee and whatever else. So, yeah, uh, doing things the right way going to go to daniel kincaid who says why was renus vk testing with bullardi the bullardi auto racing indy lights team seems like if he has any money left he would save it for 2020 was it bullardi asking him to evaluate the car and setups that's exactly what it was daniel this is very much a case of uh, a good kid i believe one of his early tests uh, could have even been his first test uh, during the Chris Griffith Memorial, uh, however, a couple years back, was with Bellardi. And so, yeah, bit of a relationship there. And as I understand it, uh, this was just a, a favor being extended uh, to the team, them asking for uh, the lights runner-up to come help them tweak the car and show it was fast. And ultimately, if Renus can be up front in leading the timesheets, I would say that if I am Brian Bellardi and company, that's a fairly powerful marketing and sales message to send to interested young drivers who might not be able to get into an Andretti car or maybe show that, you know what, you don't have to be in an Andretti car to be super fast or have the potential of winning. So definitely the latter option you mentioned here, Daniel. Daniel has another one, says, with the new arrow screen, will it make teams change suspension geometry? Will teams have to modify the shock absorbers and spring rates with a more with more weight up top? If so, how much will the offseason be spent doing that? So, awesome question, Daniel. Uh, the number we've heard was initially projected to be 50 pounds. We've learned that it's 60. And so, it's the aero screen, the screen itself made by PPG, the titanium halo made by Pankel. It's also the carbon frame that is bolted, I'm sorry, bonded to the top of the Delarty W12 chassis, and it's all the mounting hardware. So altogether, it's 60 pounds up high and forward. So everything you mentioned here, Daniel, I would absolutely expect all those things to change. The geometry would likely change because the center of gravity has changed, right? There's more weight up high. So you would need to adjust suspension geometry to uh, counter-effect that. Would also say that damping, spring rates, all those things will change. And that's because Firestone will be making changes to their tires. Not saying it's going to be huge, but dealing with extra weight, having to manage extra weight also up high, causing a bit more of a pendulum effect, will certainly uh, go straight the first place the adverse effects will be felt is through the tires so consider the fact that there will be tire changes to adapt to that extra weight to adapt to to manage now right so it's not just a case of what kind of performance improvements can we find with the dampers and the springs and the anti-roll bars and the third spring it's really coming down to how do all of these items manage this extra weight and manage it well and so that as the car dives under braking or rolls in cornering or 
does all manner of, of vehicular fun. How do these suspension items adapt to this extra weight up high in a, just say, a, a, if we're just talking strict performance, it's not optimal. We know it's there. It's super optimal for safety. But just if you were talking about what would we do to make a car handle the best, uh, this this is not it <laughs> by any means. So as our pal Craig Hampson, race engineer for Sebastian Board Day, told us two months ago, I think, in August, when he was our guest on the Week in IndyCar, more or less expecting to throw out all of his setups from 2019 and start over as a result of this one item and this sim- single 60-pound hunk of weight being placed atop the chassis really affecting everything so gonna have to have him back on here soon and get some more knowledge from Craig. let's go to douglas cole thanks doug you rock just a public service announcement the legendary classic driven is currently only 4.99 to buy and 3.99 to rent on itunes pass it on or just pass on it, Douglas says. So yes, if you truly have no idea what Joe Tonto's quarter retrieval service might be about, well, um, do like I did. And this is no joke. I bought Driven, I think on iTunes, years ago. It's been on about four different iPads. Uh, going back to the first one I bought, I think in the late 2000s, whatever exactly it was. It's been with me the whole time. Because sometimes when I need to pick me up, uh, on a flight, on a whatever, you got a delay or whatever. And I just, I need to laugh or cry. What are the two? I've got driven there. And again, it is just, it's so bad. It never stops being bad. That's the thing. It Its atrocities are never forgotten. So they're there. Just, it's a little Stallone-esque pick-me-up. All right, where are we going to go next going to grab two more questions here and then i'm going to say farewell for the night and i'll be back in the morning and it is pitch black outside here at 7 17 p.m I'm going to go to kyle donnelly he says would it be possible to customize the top strip of the halo slash arrow screen to match the driver's helmets to help fans id the person behind the glass day glow red maple leaf with blue and yellow checkers on hinges Silver with the blue arrow and U.S. flag on Marcos. Bright green and black for Connor Daly, etc. That's an interesting one, Kyle. I Of the billions of things I never think of that you all bring here, uh, this is one of them. I don't dislike the idea. The only caveat I would say, Kyle, and they could absolutely. I mean, teams are allowed to do anything they want. There's... Well, I shouldn't say anything. I mean, uh, pornographic imagery probably not be allowed. Uh, but other than that, as Jay Fry told me, that strip is wide open for teams to use, to sell that space to sponsors, do whatever they want. I think for hardcore fans who know what the mayor's helmet looks like versus Marco Andretti's versus Connor's, I think doing that top strip in their helmet-ish colors could be a thing. I would also say that for those who aren't super hardcore and don't know the difference from one to the other, it might not. It might be more of an odd thing. What I wonder if 
and I know I don't I don't want to say this, but it keeps my brain keeps farting it out. Part of me wonders if maybe IndyCar suggests I don't know if mandates, but suggests almost a NASCAR style thing where the drivers' names that are in the middle of the windshield banner. Uh, maybe there's a little something like that. Uh, I don't know if it's up front at the front of it. Maybe in a kind of standard place on the side towards the rear. I don't know. It's not as if cars lack driver's names on them. Some of them, like the Andretti cars, have it on the side, truly kind of below the uh, the roll hoop. Others uh, place them on top of the head surround, so that would now no longer be readily visible with the aero screen covering it up. So there's some teams that already have driver's names on the side, but now, to your point, Kyle... And I think for some, helmets are certainly uh, an easy identifier. Granted, I mean, I know that my views of um, my eyes are different than yours. I, unless we're talking identical team cars, um, I never really look at helmets to identify. It's knowing the car's livery, the car's colors, or the car's number, something. If I see... The number nine, I know it's Dixon. Uh, if it's the orange and blue PNC, or if it's just orange and blue, I know it's Dixon. Uh, back when it was Target, when it was red and white, I mean, again, knew who that was. Uh, whether it's silver uh, with Verizon and Will Power, his number 12, uh, I know, while I know his helmet livery, bleh, it's, uh, it's a nice little addition, but the base colors of the car even if it changes from an event to an event that's something that i'll look at and go oh okay they're in this colors this weekend alexander rossi for example i i think his helmet is red white and blue kind of and may i don't know if there are other colors i've seen it a million times but moreover when i see the blue and the yellow and napa ding 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 for me i know who that is so uh, I don't know if putting helmet colors on that strip around the uh, the arrow screen would be the thing that helps folks go, aha, that's Rossi, uh, more than the colors of his car, but maybe it could. So I love the idea, and don't be afraid to suggest that to teams and or Jay Fry on the good old tweeters. And our last one for right now, Gabe Argenta. Hey, Gabe. Thanks for always sending in really good stuff, by the way. He says, I loved your idea of traveling of a traveling event for an all-star race. And since Robin Miller has banned such questions, I'll say it here. Oh, you sneaky guy. You're getting around the mailbag. Is this a way to bring back Milwaukee? Come see the NTT IndyCar Series at this historic venue. Last chance until 2025. Gabe says, make it a five-year rotation. Is that sustainable? Are we just nuts? Make it a single-day show with Indy Lights, USAC Silver Crown, the Vintage Indy Registry, and hell, throw in the MX-5 Cup for good measure. I love it. And so this, friends, is uh, the idea that I floated of, A, IndyCar needs to get back to having an all-star race like it did back in the day with the Marlboro Challenge. And the Marlboro Challenge did, I don't know if it was intentional, but it did migrate. It did go from oval to road course. It went from here to there. It was always packaged with a, usually the finale or close to the finale, but it was all, always packaged with an actual race weekend. So 
uh, where Sunday would have been the, the primary IndyCar race, you know, would have been held on a Saturday as just a separate feature, usually about half distance of the uh, full race length coming up the following day. And so my suggestion, again, if you didn't hear it, was we need to come back. We need to bring this back. But rather than just go to all the places that IndyCar already goes, maybe we need to think of some places that we used to go but don't and have this all-star race as kind of a fun, quick thing. As Gabe mentioned, the one-day thing, I believe I might have mentioned that as well. Just make it a come on out, just fill you up with fun it's non-points there's no championship and truly it's just money find a really good sponsor to put up money for this and so there's nothing about fuel saving there's nothing about oh i gotta be safe today and you know i I could try and go for that pass but oh i need the points and that's more important in the frame of the overall no there's no championship to worry about cash money (laughs) go beat people up let's say and knock them off track but that high percentage risk pass that you would not do normally. No, no, no. This is the time. Throw it down in there. Bang wheels. Flip each other off. Go get it. Just see these guys and hopefully women as well with no restrictions. Uh, do that. That was the idea. And move it around to some venues where you know IndyCar maybe once went and had a good time, but there are no longer people there or there's no longer a race. Milwaukee. That's the obvious one, Gabe. It's truly the obvious one. Uh, what are the other ones? I mean, heck, I don't, honestly, I don't even know. Uh, maybe you could send in some ideas. I am going to write about this. So maybe send me some ideas on other former IndyCar tracks that still exist that maybe if we put on a great all-star race there, and again, hey, we're going to be at this place in 21 somewhere else 22 somewhere else 23 me i don't know about five-year rotation gabe but you know and then 24 we'll come back to the place we started and you know just who knows maybe that maybe wherever it is if we just say milwaukee is so popular in 21 maybe that's something that indycar says gosh enough people turned out and we asked them hey you know during before the start of the race after the all-star race hey crowd if we came back next year and put on a full race weekend, would you guys turn up? Is that something you want? I mean, you know, ultimately, we just want to go where we're loved, where we are prosperous and profitable. And the gamble, you know, hey, we're going to go back to Phoenix. I, I, I never thought that was going to work. Uh, it's just been too long. Uh, since people cared about IndyCar racing there. I was there back when the IRL was there, and, you know, there's a little bit of a crowd, a little bit, uh, I think, in the early early days. But, yeah, it went away quickly and w- went downhill. But, again, I don't know. Is it uh, Las Vegas, a Fontana? You know, could it be a road course at one of those, two, you know, road course oval type thing at one of those venues? Could it be, again, I don't know. Could would NASCAR let let us go use the uh, the oval or the the roval like they do for the uh, Rolex Twenty Four? I don't know. Could it be another classic NASCAR track? Pick whatever it is. I know we're going back to Richmond, but whether it's Bristol or Darlington or Talladega or the Charlotte Roval, I don't know. But I do like the idea of IndyCar getting back to celebrating its best drivers, top twelve with an all-star race, Greg, 
Greg, good Lord, Gabe, with an all-star race. Greg Ray popped into my mind here, Gabe, sorry. An all-star race with the top 12 and doing it at a place that's either an old venue that worked or a place that we've never been, but we know, boy, it's really popular with other forms of racing. You know, you have a little bit of the issue here that NASCAR owns many of the tracks that we might consider, and I don't know if they'd want the competition, but hey, if it brings in money, uh, that might be a thing that they liked. So great thing to know is Jay Fry is all about ideas. Hey, if it works, yeah, I mean, let's give it a shot. It's a lot easier, I would think, Gabe, to try and do this on a one-day big all-star race like you mentioned. Indy Lights, Silver Crown, Vintage, Mazda, MX-5 Cup, those insane bastards. Let's just fill up the day with fun and do that for one day. Keep the costs way the heck down. Uh, So it's truly just turn on the lights in the morning. Let's go all day. Maybe if it could be a night race under the lights, that would be awesome at wherever. Um, And then go home. Keep it cheap for the teams. So it's not a whole bunch of days on the road, a whole bunch of uh, hotel Built, you know, hotel nights and rental car. You know, just keep things tight financially. Same for the fans who would be coming too, knowing that some would be coming out of town, not having to book three, four, five days. Just get in that uh, Friday night, uh, go and enjoy the heck out of yourself Saturday and Saturday evening. And who knows whether you go back to the hotel or catch a flight home or drive home. Something compact like that, I think, would be awesome, Gabe. And I'm with you, man. Milwaukee, got to start there. That That's our home. Uh, that is absolutely our home. So I should shut up and start writing. All right, guys, I will be back in the morning. All right, well, I lied. It's not Thursday morning. It's not even Friday morning. It is 11.13 p.m. Friday night. Uh, yeah. Sorry, guys. Uh, yeah. Let's just say things have been very busy. At the old Pruitt household. And not bad stuff, just time-consuming stuff. So here we are, continuing, uh, 48 hours later, I think. Yeah, sorry. All right, let's get rolling here. And I'm really hoping that I remember where I stopped. I think I do. Yes. All right, we're going to Ryan Terpstra. He says, I'm not advocating for anyone to lose their job. But can we all agree that Bob Varsha is a really good motorsports broadcaster who shouldn't be constantly looking for a job. He's out of work in Formula E now, searching for a job again. I will double and triple that notion, Ryan. I am very, very fortunate to call Bob a friend, a former colleague for many years at Speed, and just someone whose amazing body of work I have loved and appreciated since my teens. Uh, he was the the face and voice of IMSA for a really long time. Uh, IndyCar, Champ Car, just everything. And it's funny. I've heard some criticisms in recent years of Bob from some veteran producers who have, and I'm not saying there's been many, but I've heard from a couple who've portrayed Bob as being too wordy, too esoteric, too, frankly, too smart. And he, I don't know, I've 
not going to belabor the point here, but I'm the son of a mechanic, okay? Now, granted, my father was a very educated man, read constantly, unending quest for knowledge, uh, was not, although he went to college, I don't believe he had a college degree, but, you know, this is a guy raised in the deep south on a farm who went to the army, became a mechanic, and worked on cars for his life. Doesn't mean that has to be a dumb person. Just means that this isn't someone who committed their life to academia and becoming a Rhodes Scholar. And yet, he's someone who always pushed me to learn more, think more, become gooder at word talking and word writing and all kinds of things. And so it just strikes me as funny, Ryan, when we have someone like Bob, who is truly uh crazy educated uh, a lawyer by trade but just someone who regardless of his education is someone who genuinely tries to master his craft fill his brain with information facts viewpoints just really give you more than just hey and there goes the red car around the corner it's going real quick like and hey pass the other guy and all right go team feels like you're learning feels like you're enjoying at least my interactions with bob on television just feels like this is cool this is this is like the old school master who is you know really bringing some good stuff doing a great job but also adding flavor to the broadcast that maybe not many others could and so just strange to me to hear criticism from some thinking that maybe to be successful today could be part of the reason why Bob has struggled to find continuing employment at Fox, uh, former Speed Channel, because they believe he just needs to dumb it down. And, yeah, if that is all true, it would just make me sad because then we're just not really going for anything unique or excellent We're just trying to be as generically popular and simple. And i got to hope there's a place for the Bob Varshas in the world uh, in this fine form of motorsports media. Going to go to Darren Leonard here, who says he has several questions regarding helmets in the aero screen. Is asked if Penske, and this is for our guest, Travis law whether penske has worked or plans to work with any of the helmet manufacturers and the impact of the aero screen or is this a driver issue since each driver could have their own preferred helmet brand also says that perhaps i could have our friends at bell helmets comment on the issue and even dive deeper into the custom helmet personalizations offered through their pro shop Uh, also says sending love and prayers to my wife shabrell from bama which is my wife's home state uh, i just took this for myself darren quickly because yes t- uh, to your point and as you raised there are bell users there are awry users um i'm sure there's a variety you know not too many but uh, there are you know a multitude of vendors who supply helmets to drivers and each one of them has their own ways of doing everything so in this instance Uh, knowing that not only do the helmet vendors work closely with the drivers, but since if we're just talking the -the over-the-wall crew, uh, those very same vendors, even though they aren't, you know, uh, racing helmets, driver helmets, 
they do often work closely with the crew members uh, to provide them with some form of helmet that works best for them for not just safety but also you know general vision having to see more than uh, say you would through a driver's helmet with a relatively narrow perspective and such so just working pretty closely with crew members to help their unique safety and view and awareness needs so it wouldn't surprise me if we saw the uh, the helmet techs really getting stuck in pretty heavily less than maybe they have with just the drivers though maybe it will be more of working uh, even closer with the crew not for their helmets but knowing that the crew will indeed be a more integral role of i would say cockpit cooling uh could be a variety of things i haven't thought of all the different ways but i do know that instead of this just being the traditional relationship of driver helmet vendor and helmet tech uh, this is something where i would expect crew chiefs like travis and others to actually you know tug on those folks a little bit more often say hey you know our, our guy is saying that this is happening and what do you think we could do maybe to the helmet or you know, let let me get a little bit more involved here to find some solutions. So as more drivers test with the aero screen, Darren, I think this would certainly be something uh, interesting to dive into for sure. Going to go to our pal Nick Vance. Says, MP, can you offer any insight on where the current Indy Lights drivers are going next year? Who's coming? Who's going? Obviously, Oliver Askew is a hot topic among drivers to move up to IndyCar next year. Rena's VK seem to be slotted uh, to go to Ed Carpenter Racing. But what about Ryan Norman? What do you know? What can you say? Me personally, I'd love to see that Renus can, I would love to see what Renus can do in the big leagues, but we'd be happy to see him grow another year in lights if it gives him a better, clear path to a full-time ride the following year. Um, hmm. Yeah, Ryan's actually on my list of folks I need to reach out to. I am unaware of Ryan having more than a part-time budget. So, yeah, we'll need to check in and see what's happening there. Uh, yeah, the Oliver angle, for sure, is a, an interesting one. Where will he land? Um, Renus, another one as well. I, I think some of these things are, you know, farther down the road to being done than not. Uh, it sounds like Renus is going to be a full timer. Uh, I've heard, heard that that might have been something that's become a fact. And so assuming, you know, the options there aren't massive as well. Uh, It's not like there's six teams to choose from and where will he end up? So if it is an ECR, definitely will be a surprise. Ask you still, uh, you know, Knowing that Pato Award has just very recently come online as someone that could be had by the Aero McLaren SP team, which unveiled a new logo today, and I'm raising my voice a bit to make it a little bit of a question mark because it is new, but hmm. Um, it seemed like Oliver was pretty close to a lock to going to Aero McLaren SP, what we lovingly refer to as spam here. We've been asked not to use that in print, by the way, just a little bit, which it should never be used in print. It's just an informal thing for fun. Nonetheless, interesting thing, though. 
which is the hey it looks like this person's going here and okay and that that looked like it's going to be oh that person just became available oh well the guy that we thought was going there uh, maybe his reality has changed a little bit because someone either more experienced possibly better whatever it is has bumped them from that opportunity it's maybe one of the the lesser acknowledged parts of the silly season hey this person's going here great but if that team has options meaning they have the ability to hire instead of needing to see who can show up with the biggest check it's not a surprise when you go yeah that guy's for sure they're going to make the announcement oh oh really that guy's out of contention now because someone else is now available Ooh, these things happen so yeah we'll see we'll see how all this pans out nick um I do know of one team that hasn't been mentioned as a destination for Oliver that could be a destination for Oliver. I know that because the team asked me for his contact info, um, which I told him about. So, uh, you know, I'm confident Oliver is going to be in something good next year. And that that is the thing that I want more than anything coming out of the 2019 Indy Lights slash IndyCar season. Want to see the champ in a proper opportunity to show what they can do and not be hamstrung by, boy, all we could find was a team that's hopeless or I have so little money that, you know, I'm going to be a, folks are going to refer to me in the future as the Indy Lights champion because I'm going to do so many or so few IndyCar races before my budget runs out and my career tanks that uh, I'll, I'll forever be known as the Indy Lights champ who did a couple of IndyCar races, uh, not the IndyCar driver, uh, as we would hope. So uh, it sounds like something good will be coming for Oliver. Always nervous, though, that uh, until it's announced, oh boy, um, just hope nothing goes sideways here. Let's go to Bobby Rooney. So as you were talking about the structure of the Andretti Harding Steinbrenner team recently, and it got me thinking for whoever coordinates or searches for sponsors within the full Andretti IndyCar organization, how do they decide which car gets the sponsor and money? I'm sure the sponsor decides. It has a lot to do with the driver, etc. But any good salesperson can help direct some people to an outcome. Andretti has five cars, but owns three of them outright, has two partners in the Herta car, and about 57 partners on the 98 car. Um... Presumably, there are different financial arrangements for the partner cars, so there's an inherent incentive to direct new sponsors to the 26, 27, or 28 cars. How do the parties navigate the built-in financial conflict of interest here? That's an interesting one, Bobby, and and I don't want to take too long here just because, yeah. You have a situation with, uh, let's go with the 26 car. Zach brings Gainbridge, uh, the Group 1000 folks. Zach brings them to the party. It's his sponsor. He is part of that contract, meaning um, while that sponsor signs with the team to give money to the team, uh, it is attached directly to Zach Veach. Zach sponsor. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, Zach isn't a, quote, ride buyer, right? But Zach is someone who has found an amazing sponsor 
who has said, hey, we're behind you, we love you, we're going with you, as many sponsors have done throughout the years with many drivers. But that is effectively an opportunity that his sponsor has made possible at that team. Um, So there's nothing there in the Andretti front for them to go and seek. And I'm sharing this not because you don't know Bobby, but just for those who maybe others who don't. If we look at the 27 car, Alejandro Rossi, that is something where Napa came in uh, for the Indy 500 as a sponsor. That was a deal they'd been working on. Wasn't a huge deal from what I understand in 2016. Um, This is something that got developed and developed and grew and wonderful. And so that was expanded, become primary. We know that next year and over the next couple of years of Rossi's new contract, that what Auto Nation will be involved. And, you know, there's a couple of other partners that have come in to help satisfy the full, full budget. But this is a case where, coming to your primary question, This isn't a situation where the Andretti team says, hey, we got a bunch of cars and we need a bunch of sponsors. Let's go find some and then we will pass them out. It is a case of we've got these entries. This one is fully satisfied by this sponsor. This one here uh, has a sponsor that's been attached to it. Maybe that sponsor is going to dial back a little bit, as we've seen with Rossi. Uh, and needing to bring in some other companies to uh, really anchor uh, the budget there for the next couple of years. Uh, hey, DHL, well, they're they're a big deal. They've been a big part of that 28-car uh, program from the outset, and AutoNation is there too, and I'm sure there's a couple others I'm forgetting, but that's a car that has, you know, that isn't, while they're always looking for more money, as is every team, Uh, The specific needs of specific entries is what the team is searching for. And uh, in the case of the 98, Marco Andretti's car, with Marco as a team owner, Kerb, Agajani, and Herta, and Michael Andretti, uh, yeah, that tends to be the car, the one car, historically, uh, I guess, I I don't know in how many years, but that has been the car that has the most livery changes per year whether it is their concrete partner whether it anyways lots of stuff oberto beef jerky and this and that that tends to be the car where they're constantly looking for new and unique sponsors to help pay for things and you know reasoning wise we probably figure out the car is not always that competitive unfortunately uh, and that's whether, you know, Marco's been in the 98 or some others. Been a lot of lean years, and that tends to result in lean retention of big primary sponsors. So we've seen that of all the things for the team and their marketing folks to chase, that 98 car is one that is needed to be fed. Uh, new names, new everythings on a regular basis. Uh new challenge here with the 88 car with Colton Herta coming in. And so this is the thing to me, Bobby, where of the five now, three of those, as you mentioned, uh, they've got their sponsors. We know what they are, what they're going to be. And that's kind of a normal, you know, just continuing on as they've been. 98 has been the one that is 
always requiring some effort and they've been they're crazy successful in finding new companies to come on board and partner with them for that so again it's full credit to andretti's um marketing and sales team the 88's the new one where they're now going from one car that needs a lot of work and help to pay for things to two they've taken on that responsibility and as i understand things uh, Mike Harding is not someone who's writing a check to get that car on track. Here's actual operating budget to go to this track and this track and pay for brakes and pay for flights. That, as I understand it, is not Mike Harding's role. He's contributing assets in terms of chassis and parts and pieces and all the you know the hard parts to run uh, that are needed to make a team. We know that the Steinbrenners certainly want and intend to be sponsor finders, sponsor bringers. Hasn't been something they've been overly successful in. They have contributed money of their own to keep the 88 car on track with Colton this past season. And I would expect them to, however it happens, whether it's out of their pocket or sponsors they can find in partnership with Andretti, something has to happen there. Uh, There's no way that Michael Andretti is going to have a, uh, a co-entry, a name partner on a car, and that partner isn't contributing something. So this, to me, though, is really where Andretti's marketing department is now going to have to do some pretty incredible things because in taking on the Andretti Harding Steinbrenner entry, the 88 Honda, Colton Herta, uh, they have a driver's salary to pay, they have crew to pay. They have the operating budget to find. And of the three names there, really it's upon two to actually get people writing checks for them to deposit and then burn. And I think between those two, it's going to end up being Andretti, really being the, the powerhouse in this. So I don't see any conflicts of interest here. Um, I just see the fact that of the five, there's two needs. One ongoing they've been successful with, and now they're just going to have to really push to find more companies to come in and help fill up the budgetary needs of the 88. Pat O'Day says, MP, any word on why Tony Kanon's engineer was let go from the Foyt team? That being Eric Cowden. Uh, I mean, you could, uh, you could point to plenty of reasons. Uh, just a general lack of performance would be the easiest one. And... I can tell you that that did not sit very well with uh, the driver in question here, knowing that he and Eric go back 25 years or so. Um, Yeah, I would say that Eric was certainly, I don't know if blame is the word. Eric's really good. He's really smart. He is just really everything. He's a person where you're not going to find many on the Indy, in the IndyCar paddocks or garages to say bad things about Eric. Uh, he's just really good, really proven, really solid. That team was let down by a bad direction on their damping program, by and large. Not saying that's the total reason, the total blame, but... Uh, they spent a lot of money for them uh, and time in the off season to try and get up to speed and join everyone else in the dampers make a huge difference in being successful in IndyCar game. 
and their assistant engineer who spearheaded that, uh, as I've been told. Um, unfortunately, I mean, you go and chase things in the name of performance improvements. Even the best teams, some of you might remember in Dreddy Autosport a couple of years ago, Michael uh, gave me some amazing quotes about how mad he was uh, having spent a fortune on this in the offseason and his cars were garbage. And you know, even the best teams can go down the wrong paths and then spend a lot of the season trying to figure out why the cars are slow and then arrive at the conclusion that, oh, man, our damper program's way off and you're not going to regain <laughs> you're not going to regain what you've lost what you've missed in the last couple months of the season you're just hoping to not be as bad um i think you know i think eric was partly you know like you see with the team a uh, pick the sports team uh where they get off to a bad start and there were high expectations and they're 2 and 7 and they're not going to make the playoffs for the second year in a row. Eh, you know, it's not uncommon to see the uh, defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator, assistant coach, head coach, someone, you know, in the leadership of the team performance department get shown the door. And so my my general feeling here, Pat, is while I wasn't surprised to see the change, simply because with the team just still out to lunch, it, it, these kinds of changes aren't uncommon. So they made the change where yeah, also with the assistant engineer. So there, there's a total engineering overhaul that needs to be performed since they have uh, effectively, I believe only retained Danielle Cucciarelli, who's, uh, I don't, I've also heard he's been stood down a little bit from race engineer to um, I'm not sure what exact engineering role, but they've decided everything's bad, everything's been wrong, and we need to start from scratch. As I've mentioned on the podcast here in recent weeks, I don't know, maybe even recent months, the concern is you're potentially struggling with budget hearing that that could be solved and things could be okay. So that's great. But team's been super struggling. You've lost your primary sponsor. Uh, we expect one of the two drivers is not going to be back. Mateus lace again, uh, just don't would not expect that based on what he told me. And so then you also blow out your engineering group. Uh, you blow out, I don't remember his exact title, team manager, uh, George Clotes, uh, knowing that Larry Foyt is, you know, the general manager overseeing all. But you know, there's a lot of changes, and the volume of changes, Pat, the amount of changes that would shake folks. Uh, not scare, but if you want to get someone, quote, better than Eric Cowden, uh, the amount of just turnover is something that would lead most super elite race engineers to go, no, not a chance. And not because it's a big and daunting task. Like, oh boy, these guys are back of the grid. I got to, you know, wow. 
you know, will I be able to, will they let me, will I have the resources? Will I, will I, this, will I, that, um, the best tend not to engage themselves in shaky ground. And that's the thing where if the Foyt team really does want to, um, it's easy to say you want to improve, but actually do the things that are visibly positive and change oriented to improve. Part of that's projecting stability. Come to work for us. I'm going to sign you to a three-year contract, guaranteed. Uh, we're going to give you carte blanche with hiring. Uh, we're going to commit X amount to an R&D budget that is, we know, and you tell us as well, is super strong and stout. Turn us around. I think they could get some good people to do that. I don't know if they're going to find better than Eric. And so that is why I just wanted to spend a moment or two on this, Pat, because yeah, I totally get why the change was made. It's not uncommon in sports, bad season, bad couple of seasons. Of course, someone at the the senior coaching level uh, is going to get let go. Um, I'm not pointing at Eric Cowden, at least externally, and going, yeah, that, that it was because of that guy. Uh, let's see. Going to go to Steven Straub. Hey, Steven. He says, MP, after reading Robin's latest article about the Foyt team, I couldn't help but think about what Tim Sendrick said in the podcast about the benefits of having all their teams from different racing series, except obviously the Australian supercars, under one roof. It seems to make sense that it would be helpful to share ideas and expertise across teams and series. He says, do you think AJ will ever give in to the idea of consolidating operations into their shared base, split base, in Indianapolis? They also have their uh, their primary longstanding shop in Waller, Texas. He says, do you think this is one of the big things that is keeping them from being successful? I do 100%, Stephen. And it's for probably the most basic of reasons and the same reason that they've been facing, which is... They struggle to get new talent to sign on and head down and relocate to Texas. Uh, you might say, well, but isn't Coyne, isn't Dale Coyne in good old Illinois? He is. Been there for a really long time. And, you know, the Newman Haas organization was also uh, same basic area as well so there's a little bit of history of all right so got something going on there uh we got the shank team in ohio they've been there for a while they're they're good there. still illinois indiana ohio still talking the midwest you can look out east slash south and say penske aren't those guys in, in north carolina indeed they are been there for a long time big racing industry in the Carolinas, um, you know, so just talking established hubs of motor racing and routines that folks say, okay, hey, I've, I'm going to go to work for Penske. I realize it's not Indianapolis, but yeah, hey, that's, that's a lot of opportunities out there if that one doesn't work out. Uh, plus, it's, you know, it's a metro in some way, shape, or form. Shank being in and around Columbus, Coin not being too far from Chicago, realize that houston is indeed a major hub i just 
haven't heard from a lot of racing mechanics who are Indiana, East Coast, West Coast, whatever, saying, I want to pack up and take my family to Houston to live, to work on IndyCars. And this is one of the issues that they've had. It's just, I I wish it wasn't, but it is. And so getting the high-quality folks that they want, they've been able to get some high-quality people in Indianapolis. Uh, That is not something they've been able to do so far, unfortunately. Again, I'm talking new folks to come in, not the existing long-standing crew. But, hey, we need some new blood. We want to try whatever. Uh, This is something where uh, it's been a struggle. So if they want to get rid of that struggle, consolidation, as you point out, would certainly be something for them to consider. All right, it is 1147. Let's continue the party. Let's go to Joshua Ponce. MP, what are the chances that IndyCar could go back to Homestead Miami Speedway to race on the Oval? I know IndyCar already goes to St. Pete for the season opener which I've been to and would go back to even if I have to drive from Miami. It may also be just me, but hashtag me personally. I would love to have two IndyCar races in Florida. As I recall, when IndyCar ran down here in South Florida, either in downtown Miami, Tamiami Park, or Homestead Miami Speedway, the crowds were pretty decent in size. Yeah, the the latter days of the Homestead, uh, what proved to be the IRL slash IndyCar finale it wasn't wasn't too full of people but uh, pretty much my standard answer Joshua and it is if and when Homestead Miami Speedway calls IndyCar and says hi here is a million and million million and a half dollar sanction fee and here is a decent number I really can't say what they would agree on a decent number being for marketing and promotions, then IndyCar would consider it. But, again, just for those who haven't heard me say this uh, a dozen times, IndyCar, except for rare cases, doesn't say, we just want to go somewhere. It's a case of that circuit reaching out and saying, hi, we'd like to host a race. What would it cost? Do you have an interest? So could they go back? Absolutely. Uh this is, would be something where Homestead would be the instigator because at least right now IndyCar is not really lacking in options. Uh, the ones that it has seem to be working out fairly well for it. So I uh, wouldn't be against it. I mean, there have been some, <laughs> been some amazing races on the Homestead Oval over the last 20-whatever years uh, in open wheel. It's just been a while since we've been back, and yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if if folks forgot about us or if they would indeed turn back out uh, to see us put on a show, but I wouldn't be against it at all. I just would hope that if there's any chance of it happening, that our friends at Homestead Miami believe that they would have the money to actually give IndyCar reason to be there. Uh, Let's see. Let's see. Mike Stoops says IndyCar has decent stability schedule-wise but can't get some dates with consistent venues. Pocono's out, Richmond's in, Phoenix is out, Coda's in, Sonoma's out, Laguna Seca's in. How many venues are left where IndyCar can be at least a moderate success? Are they running out of places? It's a great question, Mike. 
And I would say that places that they've been, are familiar with, are known for. Yeah. It's not a lot of, remember when we used to go back there? And could we do it again? It's mentioned uh, somewhat near the open of this week's listener Q&A here. Milwaukee's the gold standard for that. When will we go back? Um, there aren't a ton. I mean, truly, there are not a ton. Uh, could Sonoma work again? Don't think so. I just, I just don't. There's just not enough people that care about IndyCar. Uh, we saw that in evidence of the lack of people that turned up year after year, unfortunately. Uh, racing wasn't always great, which probably contributed to that phenomenon as well uh phoenix yeah you know there was some good racing you know there we weren't not like we were, went back for five years but there was some good racing wasn't great also the timing wasn't great seem to recall there being a couple of major events uh going on in the area as well which would have taken folks attention elsewhere um you know uh, stupid heat and just yeah it's a lot of things that, that conspired against Phoenix being a uh, place that we went back to and had great success. Uh, Pocono, I loved <laughs> loved what Pocono could have been. I know that back in the day, it was a very popular place. Uh, last thing I remember with that would have been Cart era. It's been a long time since IndyCar drew significant numbers at Pocono. And so having been gone for a couple of decades, you know, there, there was a decent, very decent try. Just saw that it's a big old facility. <laughs> it's a big old place. And you know, it takes a lot of people for it to look like it has, uh, it has done well. So I'm not sure what we might have left there. Beyond that, I don't know how many other significant venues that IndyCar has been to uh, that we would say, oh, let's go back there. It's just, boy, it's ripe. It's ready. So I think that, honestly, the only options would be, indeed, to see about this NASCAR thing. Could there be a a partnership and a dual race, maybe? Maybe the thing? Uh, with NASCAR taking their International Speedway Corporation and the dozen-plus tracks they own back in-house, privately-owned thing. If they are truly interested in wanting to earn more money, maybe they need to consider uh, possibly placing IndyCar at one or two of its, you know, call it traditional stock car places. Who knows? I mean, that would be an interesting experiment. Uh, Do know that IndyCar wouldn't, show up for free so there's that thing yet again that needs to be satisfied but that could be you know just trying to think of the things that indycar hasn't done in terms of schedule venue stability consistency there's not a lot of old places to go back to anymore and yeah so i would say on the nascar front that's something to think about i'd say the biggest thing this has seemingly died down as a thing and that is Making something new, not being street courses. Haven't really heard of, of, I mean, granted, we've heard of, hey, this they might like to do this here or there, but it's a like, not a we really are going to do this. That's been the thing that has you know helped IndyCar considerably in new markets. 
not always for a super long period of time. And we know that most street circuits do not last very long, but just we're talking, I know that stability isn't something that that would necessarily achieve here, Mike, but just in terms of, all right, where can we go? Where do you think we might get some success? Good street course. If the (laughs) municipality gets the money right and handles things properly and doesn't try and jerk the date around and whatever, these things can bring out some crowds, man, some pretty serious crowds, especially if we're talking about introducing IndyCar or even IMSA to a region or a state or just a general area that might, you know, that has some sort of love for sports and has never seen something like this up close. Let's see, going to go to Pablo Vasquez, who says, are the only options for Pato a McLaren, or could there be an Andretti place, or a Penske, or maybe some sort of Mexican sponsor to help get him into Formula 2? Uh, Pablo, I do not know of any team other than McLaren that has the financial ability and interest to work with him right now. That's not a negative statement. That just means that so few teams actually have a bank account with money in it to pay a professional driver to compete for them that the options for Pato are super limited right now. If Andretti had a funded car and no driver, do I think they would pursue him? Absolutely. Do I think Penske could? I'm not sure. I'm positive that they respect his talent. Not sure if he fits the the squeaky clean thing that they tend to look for. Uh, he's a big personality, showy personality. Just not sure if that would be a fit for Penske right now. In five years... Absolutely. Right now, uh, they tend not to hire many 18, 19, 20-year-olds in the modern era. So absolutely, McLaren, I would say, is the one place right now, Pablo, with the money and the interest and the ability to put Pato in a car. Uh, Everywhere else, there could be interest, but not the money to do that. Uh, Let's go to Ed Haynes, who asks, is there a Dan Gurney book coming from the estate? Um, Yeah, I would say it'd be coming from All-American Racers, not necessarily the whatever the estate would be, Ed. Uh, This is the book that Dan and his wife Evie worked on forever, and Evie has been keeping herself very busy editing and choosing photos. The photo side is something that has been a... uh, captioning journey and really very time consuming so uh, we it does sound like that's getting closer to at least part one of this two volume uh, what I hope is going to be a masterpiece coming our way sometime very very soon going to go to JJ Gertler says MP something you said on last week's podcast about the attitudes of current Penske drivers got me thinking Penske used to insist on very clean-cut drivers. I still remember hearing about him making Donahue, that being Mark Donahue, shave if there was even a day's worth of beard showing. 
that was part of why people like Kevin Kogan, Tom Sneva, and such didn't last as long uh, as they might have. It says some of Rogers' drivers today are considerably more colorful, temperamental, less Penske perfect. My thesis is this started when he went back to NASCAR with Don Miller. His drivers there, like Kurt Busch, Rusty Wallace, Kes- uh, Brad Keselowski, were looser and occasionally wayward personalities that now seems to carry over some to people like will the double bird power in short is it my imagination or have the captain's standards gotten a little looser it is your imagination i would say jj on the indy car front even on the imsa front nascar i mean that's part of the nascar culture for as long as i've been alive and known about it involves outlaw and doesn't mean that folks are just acting like idiots for fun, but it's meant to be a little looser. It's meant to be super corporate. I mean, there's logos everywhere, and they all get thanked first in every interview and so on. But, you know, a punchiness, a certain degree of punchiness is just expected. And I would say the Penske team has also realized that in Joey Logano they have a super skilled driver who is also super vanilla. And in Mr. Keselowski, they have someone who is the opposite of vanilla. I think they know that fans and therefore fan engagement, which leads to sponsor engagement, uh, the vanilla drivers where you go, Hey, that person sure can turn left, but I really have no feel for who the person is. They never say anything. They never do anything. They're just, a blank corporate slate. Those folks just tend not to be the ones that really get elevated in NASCAR. So I can understand how Penske might urge or push some of their more bland drivers to open up a little bit more, but all respectful, all positive. The IndyCar side, you know, it's a little bit of a different reality here in that while NASCAR is certainly not receiving as much money as it once did. Same with its teams from sponsors. It's still the most popular form of racing. IndyCar, I would just say that the occasional outbursts have not gone over well because it's not as flush with cash. The, The risk of angering a sponsor, losing a sponsor, boy, it's more of a knife edge situation in IndyCar. It's not like there's 20 sponsors lined up to replace a Verizon or a whomever, uh, Hitachi, if uh, driver's bad behavior, boorish behavior leads them to say, we're out of here. So just say that that longstanding culture of Penske's with the clean cut drivers and such, uh, it really does stand strong and stand firm in IndyCar and in IMSA, IMSA being very different now, uh, something where Manufacturer money is what makes it happen. Acura Team Penske exists because of Acura. Acura spending money, a large sum of money, just as other manufacturers and IMSA happen to do with their factory team. So they are truly brand representatives for Acura. Of course, Team Penske represents Chevy and IndyCar, but uh, it's not a, quote, Chevy program. Uh, It's one of many Chevy entries. In IMSA, it's 100% Acura. And so you, while you have huge personality, the biggest personality in the series 
in one Montoya. Have you heard him say anything? Really, you know, the stuff you might have heard in Formula One or even IndyCar. I haven't heard any of that stuff out of Juan and IMSA. And it's just, it's a very different dynamic. Super clean cut, super polished, super just scrubbed and shiny. IndyCar, yeah, it's a little more wiggle room. Not nearly as much as NASCAR, but bottom line is there's a culture at Penske about perfection, about cleanliness, about tidiness, and that I don't foresee that changing any point in the near or distant future. Jim Kaiser back with another piece of haiku. It says, here's a gastronomical ditty for the week. IndyCar fans crave it. Silly season serves it up. Spam, wonderful spam. Thank you, Jim. I love the fact that, courtesy of you, we now have weekly haiku on the Weekend Any Car listener Q&A episode. Paul Trahan says, MP, I'm a lover of unique and quirky cars. So when you mentioned to Marcus Erickson that you had a Saab 900 Turbo, caught my attention. Do you have any fun or interesting stories with that car? Um... I'm sure I do. They've fallen out of my brain at this hour because we're now at 12.04 a.m. Saturday morning. I will offer this. I believe it was a Saab 99 Turbo uh, my father owned. This would have been, no joke, Paul, I believe two days after I got my driver's license. Would have been 16 years old. Two days after I got my driver's license, uh, my father let me borrow the whatever the I believe it was a five-door. Again, I apologize if I'm getting my models wrong, but I believe it was the hatchback, the five-door 99 turbo. Maybe that was a sub 900 turbo. I don't. Forgive me if I've gotten it wrong. Um, I was allowed to borrow it and drove over to my friend Chris Lane's house and decided, well, hey, I got this cool turbo car, and I, it made, like, I don't know, what, 160 horsepower, but at least for 1980, what, six or seven, it, you know, while it had monstrous turbo lag, once it kicked in, it actually was a torquey punch. So I was like, hey, I'm going to go over to Lane's house, and I got a license, and let me take him for a spin in this and impress him in this weird Swedish turbo thing. And Chris was a big fan of American muscle cars, so I wanted to show out a bit. Well, Paul, <laughs> uh, I think it might have been 7 o'clock, 7.30. I remember the exact time of year, but I just remember that uh, sun was fading. It wasn't completely dark, but it was getting dark pretty quickly. And so climbed in, started the thing up, pulled away from the curb, and floored it. And, you know, the nose of the thing rose, ass end squatted down, and it took off, you know, what felt like a million miles an hour. Those sobs had really spongy shift levers. Like, you know, you could be in gear and pull it back or push it forward and feel like you'd change gear. You hadn't, it just the the loosest shifting mechanism ever so i remember yanking it back into second which felt like the throw was about 15 feet and, ah, threw it into second tried to keep the boost up and it 
fluttered a little bit, but then ah, it took off again. Whoa! And I remember looking over at Chris in the passenger seat, and his eyes, they weren't huge, but they're like, oh, yeah. The reaction was, yeah, you're right. You know, wow, this thing's actually got some kick. And then I saw the... uh, the lights in the in the rearview mirror, the, these kind of red swirling lights, and uh, yeah, the the sound of a police siren, and um, yeah, Paul. So me being Mister Cool in high school, having owned a driver's license for two days, want to go over to his buddy's house to show off the uh, forced Swedish induction. Pulled away from the curb. I think I just glanced briefly in uh, the side mirror to just look and see if there was anything there. Didn't see anything that was close. Gave me the confidence I could pull away. There, I wasn't going to be pulling out into a, a car and hitting anybody. But what I didn't do is really spend that extra quarter second going, okay, I don't see anything really close, but I do see something, but eh, whatever. Uh, that thing's going to be dust. It's going to shrink in my rearview mirror. Yeah, well, what good old idiot Pruitt did, Paul, was two days into having a driver's license, pull out directly in front of a police officer (laughs) and decide to go double the speed. I don't know what it was, 35 miles an hour in this residential area. I don't know, man. Uh, Whatever I was doing, I I think I maybe I got the third gear. I think I might have just got out of second into third, whatever the number was. Um, it was not good and it, there was no excuse, right? It, well, my foot slipped. Yeah. Your foot slipped multiple times as you're shifting. Um, I genuinely just pulled straight out in front of a police officer and took off. <laughs> I can only imagine what he's thinking. Like, are you seriously is, did someone like dare you to go get a speeding ticket? Because this is the, this is the perfect behavior to do so. So that's what I did, Paul. That's my Saab uh, 99 and or 900 turbo story. And how did it end? Well, pulled over. Cop got out, uh, said, hi, uh, what are you doing? And I I was too young or stupid to try and formulate a lie. I said, well, I just, you know, I wanted to show my buddy, you know, I always told him these cars were pretty quick and he didn't believe me. So I just kind of wanted to show him. He says, right. Give me your license, registration, whatever. Hand him my license. And that's when he kindly pointed out, you've had your license for two days and you're pulling this shit? And I kind of didn't really have a response for that. Um, This is the part, though, where it really happened. And it was my first time ever being pulled over. Is again, first here. First everything. Like you see sometimes in the movie where, you know, the 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 super criminal who's just killed a thousand people gets pulled over by whatever and just as it seems like the cops about to discover who it is and break the case wide open the call comes over the radio hey smith we need you over here there's a 402 in progress or whatever and the guy the the police officer leaves and you know uh, the guy gets away who shouldn't have that's exactly what happened to me sitting there being just reamed rightfully so by this police officer uh for doing really stupid things while being really young and super inexperienced um he got a call it said hey whatever i don't remember if it was a house fire i don't remember if it was we need some back backup 
whatever it was, uh, he came back. I heard just a little squawking something over his radio because he'd walked back to his car. Before he could get back to the car, he turned around, said, Mr. Pruitt, tonight is your lucky night. Don't ever do this again. And I said, yes, sir, of course. I'm sorry. I apologize. Please don't, you know, please. I'm sorry. No disrespect. He pulled away and Lane and I just looked at each other and just started laughing our ass off. Like, are you kidding? Uh, so anyways, that's, uh, yeah, there we go, Paul. Um, I love being a sob. I need to get another sob, another sob turbo, man. I got to admit, it's been 10, 15 years, maybe whatever the amount of time's been. And, uh, my life is poor without, we're going to go to Mario Eduardo, MP. What are your thoughts on Trevor Carlin warning IndyCar against multi-car team expansion? Yeah, so that came up a little bit this week. And I do not think much of it. And that is no disrespect meant for Trevor. I genuinely think the world of Trevor. Uh, just not only as a team owner, but as a person. So disagreeing with him that's not a sign of disrespect that's just that's what people do right um yeah i don't see it i get the basic premise hey as the big teams grow and expand to abnormal car counts well it's going to pull engineering talent mechanic talent maybe even driver talent it's going to pull big sponsors over it's going to unbalance nature in IndyCar system is going to crash or collapse. I get it. I am firm believer that if Trevor had four sponsors willing to put four IndyCars on the ground all season long or four paying drivers with the budgets to do so, um, Carlin might be a four car team. I don't know, at least a three car team. Uh, this is, you know, this is an operation that has run multiple cars and multiple, multiple series for many years. I, I'm fairly confident in saying that, uh, just staying at two cars, if they had the ability to grow, the ability to generate more income, the ability to employ more people, become a more powerful operation. I believe they would not because, because it's the smartest thing to do. Uh, It's the equivalent of stacking the deck in your favor. And while there's always a concern for the smaller teams, that's nothing new. The, while we did not have crazy multi-car teams in the eighties and nineties, we've always had the haves and have nots. And I'm telling you, whether Chip Ganassi Racing is two cars or three, or Andretti Autosport is four cars instead of five, or Penske is two instead of three, they're still going to have the best budgets. They're still going to have the ability to hire the best drivers, all of the best engineers, mechanics, marketing, communication, truck driver, hospitality, all of those people the best in their areas are going to want to go to the best. So I'm, I'm not seeing the, the full, full picture, the logic 
of this argument. This is something that has gone on as long as racing has been a professional sport. This issue didn't start in 2019. 2020 is bringing nothing new to us whatsoever. Uh, this is not a scenario we have not ex- we've we've never experienced. Even when teams when there were say just a massive amount of single car teams, there were haves and have nots. This doesn't change. Uh, we how's this referring back to the Foyt conversation from a, however long ago here? Uh, even with significant sponsorship from abc supply that's a team that was unable to get talent to come join it they made multiple offers to really good engineers in the off season who said "Eh, no thanks in the off season before that uh, with budget with the means with the ability to be the, the i should say as a have instead of a have not they struggled to get the quality of the caliber in some areas of folks that they wanted because they'd squandered that money, squandered the opportunity to be part of the big three. We can look at the Aero SPM team this past season. Pretty darn solid budget. Uh, Weren't as competitive as they had hoped, as they thought they would be. Would say, while they're not increasing in car count going into next season there's going to be more money there thanks to mclaren so here's a team that has the means is a have and is actually getting even more so okay this isn't a team that's changing its amount of entries and yet because they have gone out struck a partnership to bring more money into the team through this McLaren relationship, what are they able to do without adding a third car or fourth car? They're out looking for super extra high caliber driver talent, engineering talent, all kinds of talent. So again, I get the general premise, but trust me, uh, the best migrate up. (laughs) It happens in baseball, football, basketball, it's always a struggle and a concern for the smaller teams, the smaller market teams whose winning records aren't that great. Yeah, it's, you're going to have a hard time getting the LeBron James to go to the Phoenix Suns. Uh, Phoenix Suns need to work on themselves, make better decisions, hire better people. If you can't get the superstars that you want, maybe it's on the managerial side. Maybe it's on the marketing and sales side to find better sponsors. Maybe it's the vendors you've chosen. Maybe you've gone with the wrong engine manufacturer. Again, just so many things where you go, okay, got it, but it's not as if it's all about cubic dollars because even the teams with lots of dollars have struggled, underachieved. Some cases, some have lost sponsorship. Some have just had high-caliber people turn them down and go, yeah, no thanks not interested and that has nothing to do with expansion so just say mario i get trevor's point but if someone threw 15 million dollars at him 
I'm fairly convinced three Carlin Chevys would be on track full-time, and they would be out there trying to hire the Pato Awards and the whomever else's and chasing a variety of race engineers uh, to complement their own uh, and doing all the things that any and every other team would be doing. So I maybe don't fully get the angle, knowing that there's nothing really different that I can think of that's going on. Go to Ryan Terpstra again. Says, you've been asked by IndyCar to design a team's championship using the existing team structure. At a high level, what does it look like? For hashtag me personally, each team nominates two drivers before qualifying for each race to score points. It's an interesting one if we're thinking team's championship structure. Nominating the two drivers before qualifying for each race to score points. I like that. I would say we consider that what all the full-timers are minimum two full-time entries. I would go the opposite. I'd split. I would say the team has to nominate one to score maximum points in qualifying and one to score maximum points in the race. That might, A, give some advantages knowing that some drivers are are better qualifiers don't necessarily always get there in the race others we know um tend to struggle in the old time trials but tend to perform in the race so that would be my suggestion here ryan all right picking up here at 8 51 a.m saturday morning yes this is a triple stint edition of the week in indycar listener q a we're Kind of, sort of, rounding turn four. Headed towards the finish line. Let's go to Ryan Ward, who asks, what are the rules around Rookie of the Year? If Pato Award comes back full-time with Spam in 2020, does he qualify or did he run enough races to be classified as a veteran? I believe, without looking at it, I believe four races, something along the, those lines, Ryan. I believe if you do more than four races in a year, you are considered uh, no longer a rookie of the year candidate, no longer rookie if you return the following year. I think it's something along those lines. So even if that's off a little bit, I believe Pato's seven would certainly boot him out of the rookie of the year candidacy in 2020. Going to go to our pal Tim Calabro, who says, as we turn to stick and ball sports in the racing off season, who do you support? I think I've seen you post as a Giants, Warriors, and 49ers fan. Are those your teams? Soccer or hockey fan at all? Giants for sure. Warriors as well. And 49ers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, grew up on those three. Having grown up on the peninsula here in the Bay Area, which is the left side, the San Francisco side. Uh, yeah, that's what I grew up with. And funnily enough, even though it was just across the bay, never cared for the Oakland A's, never cared for the Oakland Raiders. So, yeah, uh, pretty much, yeah. And now, granted, uh, the Warriors have played on both sides of the bay throughout the years. Now they're back on the peninsula side. But, yeah, uh, those are my three. If we're talking football, I've been a Patriots fan since, I think, 2002, and that's because uh, I was rooting and supporting fellow San Mateo Tom Brady, 
And so I know that guy's hated by just about everybody today, but at least back then, I mean, San Mateo is not a tiny town. It's not massive by any means, though. Um, and so just seeing that this guy coming out of uh, the same town I was born in, I believe, same hospital as well. Uh, he's what, I think six, seven years younger than I am. Uh, it's just cool. Cool to see that this guy was getting into the NFL and then all of a sudden he's starting for the Patriots and Hey, here we go. And so, yeah, uh, that's someone for sure, uh, who, because of our shared hometown I've followed. And also there's another link there too, with Julian Edelman, one of the, well, their star star receiver uh he is from the town of foster city which is i don't know three minutes away two minutes away from san mateo and so there was another link uh when he came to the team like wow okay seems like the bay area peninsula in particular is uh the breeding ground for patriots uh what else what else what else uh my most absolutely beloved baseball team growing up was and granted, I was a big Giants fan, of course, but the one that I really loved was the Pittsburgh Pirates. And my hero as a child, uh, one of my two heroes, Willie Stargell, happened to be from Oakland, happened to be a Bay Area guy. He was just my guiding light as a kid. Uh, so loved, just loved the Pirates. Uh, also, I think just by affiliation loved the Steelers as well so yeah I know I've gotten flack over the years for not just having a single team and sticking to it and how could you root for anything other than your home team and I don't know I think that's idiocy Uh, I am a firm believer that if we can grasp all the complexities and differences in motor racing and all the crazy rules just rituals and whatnot yeah, you're probably capable of appreciating, you know, two different sports teams in the same league uh, for different reasons in different ways. So uh, that's that, Tim. I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, on the basketball front, uh, my other hero as a child growing up was Dr. J. Julius Irving. So uh, with both the Nets and then the 76ers, he's someone who... Yeah, just loved the doc, so he was my man too. So therefore, whomever he played for, uh, that's who I rooted for as well. So there you go. Uh, I think round about two favorite teams in both major stick and ball sports. Uh, never been to a hockey game. Been invited a couple times. Dan Rusinowski, who does IndyCar Radio from time to time, he is the announcer for the San Jose Sharks. He has kindly invited my wife and I down uh, to watch the Sharks play. Uh, I've yet to take him up on that offer or just go on our own. Uh, soccer, I played that a ton. Okay, guys, stop laughing. Uh, I Yeah, I was a forward, played soccer all throughout my youth, the uh, good old AYSO organization. And I loved it, loved it, loved it, along with Little League Baseball and just, yeah, all kinds of sports. So there you go. Uh, Let's see. What else are we going to do here? Let's go back to Ryan Terpstra as we get to our last handful of questions. We're almost done. says, I've been meaning to ask this one for weeks. How many fans recognize the championship trophy as the Aster Cup? IndyCar seem to be pushing that brand hard this year, like they're trying to add prestige to the trophy, uh, akin to the Borg Warner or the Stanley Cup. He says, it just felt forced, or maybe I'm just ignorant, and all IndyCar fans knew about this amazing Astor Cup. No, I think you're onto something there, Ryan. Um, it's a beautiful thing. 
it's truly, it's just, it's a magnificent thing to behold. It does not have the, all right, I'm going to wheel out a, a high dollar word here. It doesn't have the provenance of a Borg Warner or Stanley Cup, something with deep, rich history, many years, well-known, esteemed for it just being it. Yeah, it's not there. So I can understand. You can probably understand as well why IndyCar would want to really feed that notion and try and build it into something that has the provenance where folks go, ooh, the Aster Cup. Uh, while the lineage of it and the Aster angle is awesome and meritorious, and there's another high-dollar word, uh, yeah, maybe it just doesn't jump out. The Aster Cup sounds, I think, where this could be problematic is if you were to tell someone you are pursuing the Aster Cup without telling them which sport you happen to be involved in, I think folks might believe it belongs to any and every sport. Oh, is that tennis? Is that a Wimbledon thing? Uh, is is that field hockey? Is it cricket? Is it a name? Is it high ally? I don't know. Is it lacrosse? Ah, yes, the lacrosse champions get the Astor Cup. It just seems to me that there's... I think there might be a struggle to create any real linkage for folks to go, aha, cars, race cars, Indy cars, Astor Cup. Uh, but yeah, that is a marketing and promotions hurdle that they will need to overcome. All right, we're going to shift into final gear here and get to our last one, two, three, four, five questions. Rock on. Uh, this comes from the Reddit IndyCar group from Grobelarv's Gloves. Y'all have the best names. Hello, Marshall. Thank you for your piece with Marcus Erickson in your last podcast. There's a huge IndyCar fan base here in Sweden, and I'm really happy that you guys are noticing it as well. It says, I saw news flying around the internet recently that the city of Cleveland is looking to close down Burke Lakefront Airport for a housing development. It would be a real shame indeed. Do you know if there's been any real effort from IndyCar in the city of Cleveland to bring the race back to the airport over the last decade? Kind regards from Sweden. There have been efforts. Uh, Mike Lanigan, co-owner of the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan team, uh, was, I believe, the most recent person to look into whether it could be done. And I don't remember the reasons why, but it didn't go far. And so, yeah, have uh, heard the same thing as fact that the uh, the airport is going to be replaced and no longer a viable uh, venue if and when IndyCars or any other series wanted to return. So that would make me very sad. Having been there many times, brutal brutal humidity and heat and all kinds of things i mean it's rarely a just a, a nice warm simple uh, type environment it was usually some sort of scalding such and such but it never mattered because it was so awesome awesome made by the fans just big turnouts big party feel uh, yeah just don't want to sound like the old guy doing the, ah, everything was better back in my day no not at all we have the same feeling today at a number of IndyCar uh, events. Just know that, yeah, one like this where there was awesome turnout, great feel. You, you look forward to it every year because it had more of a festival that included racing feel to it than just, oh, here's a race. Uh, it'll happen. It'll go away. And it's just one of 
15 or 20 of those on the calendar. It was a real like, all right, this is going to be fun. The, you know, folks in Cleveland know how to party. So, yeah, definite sorrow that it would appear this option, at least at this airport circuit, is not going to be possible. Let's go to Joe Secchi 100. Says, hi, Marshall. I really hope Pato Ward gets the McLaren seat. It seems to be the perfect match. Spam, fart, and potato, as Dr. Helmut Marco named him. In the same team, it doesn't get better than this. I'm probably going to have to agree. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, good old Spam. Schmidt-Peterson, Aero, McLaren, fart. Fernando Alonso racing team and Potato uh, instead of Pato. Yeah, the uh, you mix those three up, and I, I'm telling you, it is uh, a fast and gassy organization. Uh, let's go to Eater Flozada. Which was your favorite picture that you shot from the IndyCar season? And which was which is your favorite picture from the season of any other photographers? And what do you think of the current state of photography in IndyCar? Ooh, I should have studied up for this one. I I don't know if I'm going to have many or, yeah, it's probably something from practice at the Indy 500. I always come across some you know, fun stuff there for sure. Uh, you know, okay. I don't even know if I used it or threw it online somewhere or what but probably the two favorites would have been bump day the end of bump day uh or no would have been whatever point in time it was where the the last row shootout and bumping took place and have it not the fernando alonso side that to be honest man uh, that wasn't something with huge emotions being demonstrated by the mclaren team uh, I'd say the favorite photo or photos were probably the Hunkos Racing Team uh, actually bumping their way in or knocking Alonso out and just the explosion of joy from them. That was really cool to witness just a couple feet away and photograph uh, Ricardo Hunkos giving, I forget who, a giant hug. And counter to that, I would say... And again, this isn't a joy or happy thing, but just the, this is part of why we do this, the drama would be Max Chilton failing to qualify and sitting down on the wall with his back turned to the track uh, and just trying to take in what had happened because it's something that was never even remotely considered uh, at the onset of the month of May. And so, yeah, I, I don't believe the photo composition was anything great. I don't think, again, uh, they're, <laughs> they'd never be submitted for any consideration for any award. They, they're not great photos. They just stand out for hashtag me personally as something that uh, within just a matter of minutes captured the polar ends of emotions taking place on pit lane. Uh, one crestfallen driver and one team owner and then his driver who pulled in who uh thought that they were they were dead in the water from the beginning uh, as for the current state of indycar photography really 
pleased with how far it has come. Uh, used to be not too long ago something that was a hundred percent print oriented, meaning no art, no real consideration of anything other than is the car perfectly crystal clear, every little logo perfectly crystal clear, and that's all that matters. So stupidly high shutter speeds, freezing, just freezing the cars in place. Uh, It looks like portraits. It looks like it's actually just sitting there, not moving, like they just rolled the car out and parked it for folks to shoot the thing. Um, That, to me, is just sad. So the sport that we're in is about speed (laughs) and colors and just vibrant movement. And so when you strip all of that out through your camera choices, uh, setting choices, uh, it, that stuff just makes me so sad. And so it's great to see Chris Owens, for example. Uh, he's really, I think, taken a let his artistic sensibilities fly and does some really pretty stuff. Uh, brings a lot of movement, a lot of just a lot of style, which had been missing. Uh, Sean Gritzmacher, who's part of the uh, IMS photo team, incredible candid shots. Uh, If there is a person, (laughs) you want him shooting that person because it's just amazing. Uh, And there are a couple others within the team there that can do some pretty cool things. Where I'm happiest is seeing the rise of independent photographers, and there aren't a ton but uh, there's, you know, Andy Clary, there's a, a couple of Joseph Newgarden shooter. Uh, there's a couple people where, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, looking at the high state of the art that they produce as their regular output, that's the thing that just has me going, hey, man, all right. I got to work a lot harder to keep up with that. Um, where I might have felt a couple of years ago, that's where I was playing when I was shooting more frequently uh, and, and felt very confident that I could go out and get stuff that would be as good, if not better than most. Yeah, as the shooting has dialed down on my end and uh, just been doing more video, more words and whatever for my clients, it's just given me the opportunity to play the role of observer more and looking at what is getting posted every day on the good old book faces and tweeters and Instagram. And it's heartening. It is pretty awesome to see what uh, really good shooters are turning out. And then you, you close that with uh, kind of the institutional layer, that being LAT photographic, Mike Levitt, uh, Scott LePage, uh, Phil Abbott, and so on. And so, you know, Sam Cobb, whole bunch of really good people there working as a part of LAT, which, you know, they serve as Chevy and Honda and this and that, Racer, uh, so many outlets, clients, publications. They're the gold standard. Uh, so just really cool to see. I would, if you'd asked me this five years ago, I would have had sad things to say. Now, no. Uh, it's really cool to see what folks 
go out and come back with because the biggest change i would say is technique wise yeah most folks are are playing in the artistic shutter speed ranges and then also saying okay this is the traditional shot for this corner let me think of the exact opposite let me find something no one else has thought of let me find a angle or go up high or go super low or shoot from behind or shoot from the ground whatever it is Um, i'm not saying that's what i have always done but that has always been in the back of my head of all right i know that i might want to get this traditional shot at this spot but all right how can i go play around and find something else that's unique where you go oh okay hey hadn't tried that before that seems to be the mindset that's just standard for almost everybody now and I would say that's the reason why the quality of photography in IndyCar has gone up to a, a intensely high level. All right, two to go, two to go. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to I Forgot My Password. Okay, greetings, Marshall. All right, there we go. The way I understand it is the AeroScreen tests are technically Firestone tests. Have you reached out to Kara Adams or heard anything about the tire results from the different tests? Uh, partly accurate. The first test, no. Uh, the second and third, yes. And the fourth, I think, is a no. So I might be wrong on one of those, but I believe it's been about a 50-50 split. Uh, would definitely say that Kara, will, provided she wants to come back again, who's been a, a amazing guest on the Weekend IndyCar a couple of times and uh, one or two other things we've done, absolutely want to have her back because she's just she's the bomb all right last question from bucksock b-u-x-o-q in the past you've posted a series on the podcast named who the hell are you do you have any plans on bringing this series back in the future i really enjoyed them and i still hope you'll bring them back someday greeting from the netherlands and best wishes to your wife thank you bucksock a uh, little Netherlands note here, unless things go bad, go wrong, um, I should be interviewing your countryman, young Max Verstappen here in a couple of days, uh, which I would look forward to. Uh, so, yeah, uh, hopefully all that comes together. Got the invite. I was able to move my schedule around, blast down to Southern California. This is truly going to be a catch a flight go the 11 miles from the airport to the venue, probably take my first ever Uber. All right, that's another thing. I've never used Uber or Lyft before. Never had a reason. Uh, but yeah, blast down on a one-hour flight, walk straight off the plane. I might not actually be carrying anything other than me. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'll bring a camera or something. But uh, in theory, my film partner, Travis, will meet me there uh, and film it and mic us up. So I might not need to bring any gear and sit down and interview max for i'm not sure exactly how long i've been told 30 minutes but i have a feeling that's not gonna you know that's a lot of time so it might be far less uh finish that hail another uber or lyft go the 11 miles back to the airport and be home within i think this might end up being hour down hour and a half on site hour back <laughs> and potentially home uh, so maybe just a four hour round trip or so uh next week so anyways uh, that's that uh let's see yes absolutely have plans to bring it back sad acknowledgement i need to make here 
believe two things, and it's because we're sharing, and A, it's the end of the show, and I figure there's three of you listening uh, by this point. Um, who the hell are you? The first series published, what, end of 2017 into, I think we wrapped it up in January or so of 2018. I recorded part two in the summer of 2018 and completed it. I don't know. I might've even started that in at Indy in 2018 and then finished that up. I think, I don't know, August, September, something like that. So yes, for more than a year, I've had who the hell are you part two sitting in my hard drive unedited and it will be fun when I do intend to make the time here before the end of the year to get it going. And if you hear mouse clicking in the background, it's because I am searching for my who the hell are you folder. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, the fact that I don't have it just sitting here in front of me and readily grab a bowl, uh, it's probably telling, but let me see if I can find this. It would appear, huh, it would appear I captured 22 episodes of Who the Hell Are You? Man, I'm serious. I had totally forgotten it was that many. Uh, we have, and this is in alphabetical order, apparently, Bo Barfield, IMSA race director, Connor Daly, Dario Franchitti, my good friend Declan Brennan, a racing person, PR man, team principal, just one of the funniest people that I know, Earl Bamber, Porsche factory driver, Graham Rahal, Elio Castroneves, James Hinchcliffe, Jan Magnuson, Joseph Newgarden, Michael Shank, Porsche factory driver Nick Tandy, Corvette factory driver Oliver Gavin, Paul Tracy, now former Ford factory driver Richard Westbrook, Acura Team Penske driver Ricky Taylor, Robin Miller, now former Ford Chip Ganassi Racing GT driver Ryan Briscoe, my pal Sean Heckman, who some of you would know as half of the Dinner with Racers podcast, uh, Simon Pagano, Will Power, and the Coupe de Grace, the Grand Finale. Mr. Two Questions himself, media star from Germany, Wolfgang Monser. So those are the 22 that I apparently sat down and did this with, these folks with very bad, very bad taste. Um, so those are the 22 that we have. I just need to decide how exactly the shows are going to be presented the last if you listen to the first series you'll know that it was totally unfiltered uh whatever adult words that were spoken were spoken and aired uh just need to decide exactly how the second season will be presented whether there will be a clean version followed directly behind it in the same file same audio file of the unfiltered version or uh, we had one team request after three of its drivers participated to bleep any of the driver's curse words or any of the, the adult words that were used. So out of respect to that team, although they made the request afterwards, 
And although their drivers participated in season one, where they would have, in theory, heard the cursing and adult words, and just because that's who human beings are, not these cleaned, polished, perfect entities. That's the whole reason behind the series, obviously. Uh, Let's ask a bunch of serious questions, silly questions, dumb ones, poignant, whatever, and get rid of the artifice. Just be a stripped-down human being, give folks a better idea of who the hell you really are. Um, nonetheless, that team came back asking if we could, you know, polish up their driver's answers a bit. So just need to figure out exactly how to do all that. And once I get that done, yeah, um, I can't wait to let that go because there's some fun stuff in there for sure. Wolfgang. Yeah. Uh, he said some things that might get him detained by German authorities. And that's not a joke. Uh, Bo Barfield was freaking amazing. Dario, uh, yeah, uh, Declan Brennan, Dex. I mean, I, I try and play the straight man in these interviews. Um, I, I was having a fight off laughter the entire time and did not succeed a whole bunch. Um, Elio, <laughs> ah, Elio surprised me. Uh, Elio surprised me. And then Miller, uh, yeah, Miller's just Miller. So, um, lots of great stuff. Lots of great stuff. And so I just need to get busy here, Buckshawk. I really do. So my apologies there. And uh, yeah, let's end on that. Uh, I got work to do. I got things to do. It's now, what, about 9.20-ish, 9.25, I think. And we've got to head out here for an appointment soon with my beloved lady. So it's time for me to say, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast in our Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. Be sure to like your question and get others to like your questions to get free swag. Coming off of our Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. And thank you to Bell Racing Helmets USA. We'll speak to you next week.